Well, clearly Jay, as well as all of you, fought this wintry blizzard system that has, uh, that has shut down schools all over the greater San Antonio area. You know, I am not what one would consider a northerner or a Yankee or anything like that. I am from, of the two Carolinas, the South Carolina, not South Dakota, South Carolina. So I am not averse to canceling school for a snow day or for serious inclement weather, things like that. I, I can claim no superiority, no, no moral high ground like my friend Joe, uh, Joe Moore, who's from Vermont or others. You know, this is, this is uh, you know, the, I, I can't claim any of that. However, I will say that looking out the window, I'm not sure that canceling every school in, in town today was the right call. As a matter of fact, I, I, have, I have talked to several irate parents who are having to stay home with their children today. And between COVID and everything else, um, you know, to, to call a snow day on a day like this seems a bit much. I will say that part of my, part of my cynicism comes from the fact that I did grow up in South Carolina. And at least two or three times every winter, Joe Penner, the weatherman on WIS-TV in Columbia, would come on and say, get ready to hunker down tomorrow because, kids, you're not going to school. It's going to be snowing tonight. We didn't have snow for 10 years in Columbia, South Carolina. And every time I would get revved up and think, this is the time, this is the year. And so if you ask me if I trust weather people, the, the answer is a hard no. I, here's the way I predict the weather. I stick my hand out the window. If it's wet, it's raining. If it's dry, it's not. If I get cold, it's cold. If it's hot, it's hot. I don't trust the radar or the predictions or anything like that. Two things I believe. Phrase, if we are going to follow the science, freezing rain requires two things. It requires that the temperatures actually drop below 32. And it, and it would help if there was not actually an 80 degree day prior to that. So freezing rain requires first freezing conditions. Number two, freezing rain requires what? Think about it, rain. It requires precipitation. And as yet, I'm not saying it won't come, but as yet I think it was premature to, to do the cancellation. Now, I'm not judging. I'm just saying I would hate to be a school administrator who has to face the wrath of the parents who are going to be sending the irate emails and things like that. So thank you all. I will say today we're talking about courage, and I want to thank you all for your courage in getting here this morning. Well, that is not only the, the topic of our lesson for the day, it is the topic of our study, or it is the title of our study of Joshua. This is a book, the story of Joshua, both of the people of Israel in Joshua and the man Joshua. This is a story about courage. It is a story, a story about being strong and courageous, bold and courageous, as another translation puts it. And I thought it had a, had a good snap to it, which is why I use that particular translation for the title of this course. But we are talking about courage. And we're talking about courage in the context of walking in and following God's plans for our lives. If we remember, we started a couple weeks ago talking about the concept of manifest destiny. 
and that early on in the 19th century, Americans on the East Coast, the United States, really came to, to embrace this idea that God had not just planted this country on this continent for economic reasons or for political reasons, but that he had done it for transformational, religious, spiritual reasons. And so the idea was that God had not only, decided, had not only empowered the original colonists and settlers on the East Coast, but had empowered them to, to move all the way across the continent of North Carolina, and, uh, North Carolina, North America. <laughs> Actually, in the old, if you remember, the old Eight Lords Proprietors, uh, this is all South Carolina, Carolina history, the, the original land for South Carolina and North Carolina went all the way to California. So, but of course, they didn't know California was even there yet. But, um, but, but had, the whole idea was that it would be all of North America. And, and this was something that the people who moved west embraced for a variety of reasons. Of course, economic. Of course, political but also the idea of spiritual destiny. That's why this old, I love this old magazine uh, print you know, depicting manifest destiny, not you know, depicting the westward expansion, not simply as a, uh, not simply as, as a, a, a social or a cultural move, but a spiritual movement across the country. Now we know there were clashes. We know that, that it was not seen by the people who were already in the land in the same way. But, but just looking at that and relating that to the idea of Joshua. The book of Joshua is, a, is the book of Israel's manifest destiny. God has given this land to Abraham and his descendants. And having escaped, having been freed from Egypt, the people of Israel were to go and to live the manifest destiny that God had set for them in the promised land. And so as we begin that, we, we look at this as a story of destiny, of purpose, and a story of courage. Now I want to bring all that up today in, by way of introduction to, to just connect that in, in one, one very, I think, salient way to the story of our church. Our church was founded on an act of courage. And not just by one person, but I want to highlight one person. And that one person was the Reverend John McCullough. Now you all have heard me talk at length about John McCullough, the founding pastor of this church, who originally from back east came here as a quote-unquote foreign missionary to the Republic of Texas after having been here while it was still under Mexican control, but came here to plant a church and to take the Word of God first into into Texas, and then from there to launch the Word of God and the, and, and the Reformation, really, into Mexico. And when he did that, the Republic of Texas was still its own country, and, uh, and of course, at that point, still, this was still, reformationally speaking, religiously speaking, this was still Catholic territory. You remember that all those families that came to Texas that were given land grants and all that sort of thing all had to officially convert to the Catholic faith. Now, clearly that didn't stick with most of them, but nominally this whole area was dominantly Catholic. And, it was, and, and that was a political, cultural, economic uh, reality as well as a religious reality. So when John... Uh, John McCullough and his intrepid band of 12, to, records vary, 12 to 15 folks from Columbia, Texas, 
came to San Antonio, that took a lot of guts. It took a lot of chutzpah. It took a lot of courage. And that really took courage on two fronts. Number one, it was physically dangerous. It's no big deal for us to drive up to Austin or Columbia, whether it be in Texas or back to my home in South Carolina. It's not a big deal to drive the interstates and stay in a hotel, all that kind of stuff. For these guys, that was an overland trek of weeks. I mean, it was a big deal. It was dangerous. One of the reasons that the Mexicans wanted to invite and then the Americans wanted to, all these people to come in is because they wanted to help create a buffer, a, you know, a, a, a zone that would sort of buffer them against the Comanches and other groups. This was, this was a dangerous place. And so to come here from the east and, and to, to plant a church in San Antonio, that took guts. And it took guts when, when, uh, when John McCullough got to San Antonio because there were lots of people in San Antonio who didn't want another church here. One man in particular was a man named Jim Glanton who was, who was often the target of, of McCullough's preaching because he was a robber, a rustler. All, he was everything embodied by the bad guys in black hats in Western movies. He was, he was a criminal, an outlaw, all of those things. And he hated John McCullough. And there are various stories, most of them, well, all of them are counted in Dr. David Green's excellent book, The Reverend John McCullough, uh, Presbyterian Pioneer and Fighter for Christ. If you haven't, if you haven't already got this, uh, Sheila has lots of copies, and we would love to, to, um, to sell you one. They're, they're great. But this was published last year by our own Dr. David Green. Um, but it tells a story of, of the many times when not just Glanton, but other people in the Glanton gang and other people just who were outlaws and criminals came after him. He was, at one time, Glanton actually busted into to, uh, Reverend McCullough's house on horseback to come in and kill him and shoot him up. And he did. He shot Dr. McCullough in the hat. Did not actually hit him, <laughs> but he was shot at or shot. Again, accounts vary. He was never wounded, but he was shot at or shot at least three different times. San Antonio was a rough place. He called it a dilapidated place of semi-barbarism, but he believed that this is where God was calling him to be. Y'all pass this around. This, uh, I love these old pictures. Um, but it's not just that he had physical courage. He also had moral courage and a moral drive, a moral sense of God's calling and destiny that, that his presence here, again, wasn't just to settle, wasn't just to find his fortune, wasn't just to, for economic or political reasons. His purpose in coming was missional. He was to bring the light of the Reformation first to San Antonio and then, by way of San Antonio, to Mexico. And, and all point south. And that is, in fact, a mission that continued from this place and through here, through the Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists. It all happened through us. But, but that was a sense of mission, of destiny, that brought John McCullough and those first Presbyterians here. And that's not unlike the sense of moral courage and the sense of, of uh, physical courage that was experienced by Joshua and the people of Israel. God was not just sending the people of Israel to Canaan because there was space and good harvest and all of that kind of thing. He wasn't just finding a place to put them. He was finding a place to put them where they could influence the world. Consider in the, you know, if you think about 
um, the importance of the location of Canaan in that part of the world. It was a crossroads of east and west and north and south. Most major trade routes of the ancient world in that part of the world went through what is now Israel. And that is, a, a, that is an important location. I mean, it's, it's kind of like placing, you know, placing a new Israel in some place like Memphis. You know, like right there at I-40 and the Mississippi River, or you know, Atlanta, or Chicago. One of those places, New York, that, that is just a major hub of activity where people are going to cross paths and where they can be influenced by the Word of God. And so McCullough knew that God had put, sent him to San Antonio because this was the door to Mexico. Even though it was in the Republic of Texas, it was the door to Mexico. And so we see that, that Joshua and the people of Israel were not just responding to economic forces or political forces or you know, the, the political thing being that they had escaped from Egypt and they were now free and they wanted to find a homeland of their own, but they were following God's destiny for them. So as we look at Joshua, that's what we're talking about. And today we're talking specifically about that courage. So beginning with Joshua 1, 1 to 3. Uh, and today I'll, I'll go ahead and warn you, just because of conversations and thoughts I've had since last night and this morning, um, we, may, we may do a little bit of variation from the outline a little bit this morning, but that's okay. Remember, it's an outline, not a contract. So after the death of Moses, we talked about that last week. Moses, the servant of the Lord. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, My servant Moses is now dead. Now proceed to cross the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the Israelites. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you as I promised to Moses. This is the confirmation that, that Moses has passed and now Joshua has been anointed and is now being confirmed as Moses' successor. This is an official statement. This is his swearing-in ceremony. This is his inauguration in which you know, it's, it's one thing to be elected, it's another thing to be sworn in. And now this is God himself. Remember, it's the Lord who says this to Joshua. You are now in charge. Moses is dead and you are now the guy. And the question came up last night, how old was Joshua at this point? Joshua was probably, think about it, in his 60s. I mean, this is, I, I, I think it's important for us to realize that because I think at every age, you know, young people think, oh, well, you know, God doesn't have a role for me. Yes, he does. Old people think, God doesn't have a role for me. Yes, he does. Look at Abraham and Sarah. For all of us in the middle, Joshua's our guy. You know, he's a, he is the Gen Xer of his generation, as I like to think of it. He is, a, you know, if you're a boomer, okay, sure. He's, he's the boomer of the generation, the gen, you know, but, but you've got, the, you've got the, the old saints of the church and then you've got the kids. Joshua is in that, that prime age of leadership. And, and he is now being set aside by God to be that leader for his people. And, and we're going to talk about just exactly breaking down the promises, what God says to him. But let's first talk about what God says to the people through him. This is the land that he is calling Joshua to lead them into. He says... You're going to take them from the wilderness. These are the boundaries of the land that I promised. From the wilderness and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea in the west shall be your territory. No one shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life. 
So again, from the wilderness and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea in the west, shall be your territory. Now, I want you in your mind to think about the textbooks you've seen, the magazine articles you've read, the, the TV news stories, the maps in the back of your Bible. I want you to think about all the pictures of the country, the maps of Israel that you've ever seen. Okay, you got that in your mind? You got your news reports with about like the Gaza Strip and the and the West Bank and you know where Jordan is and Egypt and Syria and all that. You got that in your mind? You know, in your mind, how do you picture? What color is Israel? Blue, red. It doesn't matter. I'm just curious. Um, okay, that's the. Those are the boundaries of of modern Israel or around that that were presumably established by the British and the international community in 1948. According to what we just read, the, is, the promised land that God declared to Joshua would have looked something like this. I want you to consider that. And consider why are there, and ask yourself the question, why are there now boundary disputes about the differences of what Israel is supposed to be and what Israel is? Now, the nation state of Israel has never claimed boundaries this big. But we always assume that Israel, that the promised land was just supposed to be this little sliver over here. And even under the height of its power under David, it was never anything like this. But look at this. All the way across from the Suez, uh, Suez Canal now, it didn't exist then of course, all the way from Suez all the way to Kuwait. Now nobody cared about this right here. This was, this was a desert, but that's the wilderness it talks about. The Lebanon, that's Lebanon and Syria, all this area. The land of the Hittites. That's Turkey. The Euphrates, what was the Euphrates? Well, that runs right past what cities? Yeah, Baghdad, Babylon. Um, yeah, and then all the way up here into Iran, you know, the former, the former Soviet republics of Armenia and Azerbaijan, and, and uh, Armenia, of course, part of Turkey, that area. Um, this is a, I mean, this is a huge swath of territory. Look at all the Assyrians, the, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Medes, the, I mean, all these... I mean, th this was a huge tract of land. And so, so Joshua was told, this, you know, you take them to any place in here, they will win. It's an amazing promise. But all this goes to the idea that God is saying, I am going to make sure that no man can stand against you. Is it, you know, is it that I'm going to give you incredible skill, Joshua? No. Is it that I'm going to give your people incredible, uh, incredible technology or, or, or military might? No. It's that I will be with you. The key, the linchpin to all of this is God's will and God's presence with the people. Now, the reason I show this to you is because I, I want you to understand the bigness, the size, the enormity of what was being promised here. So again, um, we, yeah, this, is, this is the mission. This is the mission field. This is the manifest destiny. This is, this is the land all the way from Carolina to California. This is the territory. So, Joshua 1, 5 and 6 then says this. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Ah, 
there is the tagline. There's the title shot. There's the, you know, have you ever, do you ever find your, catch yourself listening to a song on the radio and you know the name of the song, but you wait till you actually hear it in the song? You know, it always frustrates me when they name a song something that doesn't show up in the song. That, that just, that aggravates me. Um, and so, I mean, you have to wait all the way, 13 minutes in, before you get to the stairway to heaven. You know, <laughs> that's, you're all the way there. But you know, here it is. This is the tagline, strong and courageous. You know, be strong and courageous. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and for courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. What land is that? This land. Okay, so, so we've come to the title phrase, be strong and courageous. The destiny of the Israelite people, the destiny of God's people is going to require courage. That is something that preach, preaches as well today and it's as necessary for us to hear today as it was for the people then. To see God's purposes, to see thy kingdom come, on earth as it is in heaven, we have to commit ourselves to God's will be done. Not our will, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And that takes courage. What kind of courage? Well, first of all, there are two types of courage that are really outlined in these first few verses of Joshua. The first is what I'm just going to call loosely physical courage. You know, that's, that's physical guts. This is the kind of courage that, that you know, makes a, you know, a soldier charge forward even though they're actual shoot, actually shooting bullets or missiles or whatever at that pilot or that soldier or that sailor or that, or that marine, whoever it may be. You know, you read through the Psalms, especially if you read through the Psalms that we... That, that, that most people don't read or that don't show up on throw pillows or, or Christmas cards and things like that. You read the stuff like where David's really upset or he's really angry, he's really pleading. He's like, it's like Lord, you know, their arrows fall down around me. Their swords, you know, their swords are drawn against me. Their armies come out against me. And we always think, ah, metaphorically, what are the arrows falling on my life? You know, what are the swords drawn against me? Who are the armies assembled against me? Well, that's all wonderful and it's all important to do that stuff. But we've got to remember that for David, those were real arrows. <laughs> People were actually shooting arrows at him. People were actually drawing out long, sharp swords to kill him. People were actually assembling armies. Even members of his own family were assembling armies to come and kill him. Real armies, real arrows, real swords, real danger. To be a king like David and to be a leader like Joshua, you had to have more, you had to have physical courage. And the good thing is, is that Joshua had demonstrated physical courage before, hadn't he? It was he and Caleb who said, we can go into the land and we can defeat these giants. Why? Because God is with us. It's not because of us. Have you not seen what God did to the Moabites and to the Ammonites and to the Amorites? Have you not seen or do you not remember or have you not heard about what God did to Pharaoh in Egypt? Not just at the Red Sea, but with the plagues. This is the God who is on our side. And no matter how big this Anakim, this giant is, our God is bigger. I don't know how many, how many of you all ever 
played, uh, played or showed your kids those great little cartoons that used to come out called VeggieTales. Y'all remember VeggieTales? One of my favorites, one of the ones that still sticks with me and still just, it is, it is in my head, is the one, it's the little song that says, God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. Oh, God is bigger than the boogeyman and he's watching out for you and me. I am 53 years old and I still go back to that one. Because God is bigger than the Anakim. He's bigger than the monsters or the giants in the land. This is who our God is. He's bigger than Pharaoh. He's bigger than Balak. He's bigger than Og. All those kings that were, that were destroyed in the wilderness and in Egypt. And Caleb's courage was saying that if that's our God, I'm on his side. I'm on his side. It's not that he's on my side. I'm on his side. I want to be where he is. And so Joshua had to have physical courage. And so when God is saying, be strong and courageous, I'm going to give you this land. He's saying, I want you to have the courage, the physical strength to not only go into battle, but to endure the pain that you and your people are going to have to endure. Because it's one thing to be given the land. It's another thing to, to occupy it and develop it. And so you're going to have to have physical courage. And I'm not just talking about physical courage in battle. I'm talking about physical courage to stand out in a field full of rocks and say, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to clear this land? Do I really? Oh, man, it's really hot. Do I really want to dig this well? Do I really want to go up into the mountains and kill that mountain lion that's been killing my sheep? Ah! Because, you know, holes cave in and wells cave in and lions fight back and not going to be easy. It's going to take physical courage. You know, John McCullough was, he wasn't, he wasn't a preacher like me who taps things on his iPad and drives into work and stuff like that. I mean, P.B. Hill carried a gun for Pete's sakes. I don't, as far as you know, but, uh, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, but if I was going to carry one, I would want like the, the one that he had, like big, you know, bone handled pistol. Um, but, but for, I mean, it took physical courage. And, and, you know, that's, a, that's, an, uh, that's important for us to remember. God is saying you've got to have physical courage for this job. But he also says something else. Look at this. Again, is God redundant? What have we learned about Hebrew, the Hebrew language? When it wants to emphasize something, when it really wants to pull something out, how does it do it? Repeats it. Yeah, mul multiple times. Or, and, and we do see in this passage, we do see this phrase, be strong and courageous, repeated three times. Um, twice by God and once by the people. Um, but so, so we're, seeing, we're seeing a level of emphasis here. But there's also a distinction. This time it says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. So on the one hand, Joshua, to, to, to fulfill the destiny, the plans that God has for His people, that's going to require what? It's going to require physical courage from the people and from Joshua. But more importantly, it's going to require moral courage. Why does God turn them back to His law? Because if they are going to be successful in the plans that God has given them, they have to be aligned with and faithful to God's Word. 
And unfortunately, they had recent experience of the opposite. Do you remember the stories of Baal Peor? After the whole Balaam episode, after, you know, after God made the donkey talk, after, you know, after, God, after Balaam ended up blessing the people instead of cursing them, the spiritual mercenary, after all of that, the people still fell into the worship of the pagans. They started sacrificing their children to idols. They started taking, for, taking part in debaucherous fertility rites. They started to commit every obscenity related to the religion and the culture of that people. They felt utterly corrupt morally. And, you know, and, why, you know, and, and why is it that, you know, that somebody say, goes running off to, celebrate, to, to worship at a, at a pagan temple with a temple prostitute? Is it because they suddenly venerate Baal or Asherah? No, it's because of lust. You know, why do they give in to the gods of blood and death? Is it because they love the gods of blood and death? No, it's because they're angry. I mean, murder over here, lust all over the place, idolatry. It's because it gives in to our baser instincts. And it's easy. And rather than correct us, those gods applaud us. And so what it does is it just becomes an open license to sin. And this is what happened at Baal Peor. And once again... God said, I am just going to wipe you people out and start over, but thank goodness for Moses and thank goodness for Phineas and thank goodness for those who stepped up and said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, God, we'll take care of this. But God is reminding Joshua that when you get into the land, if you thought that the dealing with the tribes and their temptations in the wilderness were bad, wait till you get to Canaan. You thought that the, you thought that the people out here in the wilderness... We're depraved. Wait till you meet the Philistines. Wait till you meet the Jebusites. Wait till you meet these folks. They are bad. They are a people under a curse. And you're going to have to, and, and you're going to be tempted to intermarry, intermingle, adopt their ways, syncretize, assimilate, all of that stuff. You know, that's, it's kind of like, I don't know how many of y'all used to remember, used to watch uh, the Andy Griffith show. You know, they're always, you know, the only time they ever left Mayberry, which is the idyllic, peaceful community, the only time they ever left, you know, left Mayberry, they were going one of two places, except for one episode, which was later, and I don't really count that. Um, There was the time, they were always going off to Mount Pilot. Remember Mount Pilot? That was always kind of portrayed as the slightly bigger town, you know, but you could get in trouble in Mount Pilot. But if you really wanted to get decadent, where did you go? To Raleigh, <laughs> you know, Raleigh, North Carolina, which compared to, if you've ever been to Mount Airy, North Carolina, which is where Mayberry is based on, it is like going from, it is like going from Poth to Dallas or Houston or something like that. I mean, it is, and, and it's like, that's when you go to town. Well, you thought the wilderness was bad. Canaan is going to town. You're going to Vegas. Going to Sin City, and you have got to watch out for temptation. You've got to have moral courage. And I think that that's something we really need to pay attention to right here, right now, in our own culture. Because I believe this church, which was founded on courage, continues to have a destiny. 
And that is to continue to be a church that makes disciples who love Jesus Christ, who love one another and love the city, who continues to hold up the light of Jesus Christ that all men may be drawn to Him in a culture and in a city that is less and less attentive to that. Do you remember what I preached last week in, uh, on, the, on the first, excuse me, first few verses of the second chapter of Hebrews? And that's not a test. I'm not asking you to raise your hands, you know. I talked about the fact that, that the author of Hebrews says, says, how can we neglect so great a salvation? You know, he says, pay close attention lest you let it drift away. What Joshua is being warned against here is not outright occult, well he is being, <laughs> he is being warned against outright occult paganism. But I think on the deeper level, he's being, told, he's, he's being told to tell the people, do not slip into moral and cultural and religious relativism, into syncretism, into that frog-in-the-kettle effect that, that makes you lose your religion, that makes you drift away one degree at a time. When we start saying, oh, well, that's not a big deal. When we start saying, that's, you know, oh, that's all right. Well, yeah, our parents used to say this, but we've, you know, we understand better now. Because what happens is we see that when we neglect God's law, God's way, God's truth, pretty soon the rest of it just starts to drift away. I don't know how many of you all think it's better now or worse now. But can we all agree that things are different than they were 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago? Five years ago? I'm, I'm not judging. You determine whether you think it's better or worse, but I, I think it's different. You know, I tell, I tell Becky Pritchard all the time, who's uh, one of our associate pastors, says young kids, I say, if I, if I had parenthood to do over again, I would not let my kids have any kind of smart device until they were at least 16. And so they would get a phone with my, my pre-programmed number in it. And I would never let them watch the Disney Channel. Because the Disney Channel teaches one message. Parents are stupid. Authority is dumb. It's two things I wouldn't do. And, you know, and I regret that I can't rewind and do that. So, Ross, you've got young kids. Keep them away from that stuff. Because seeds were planted that I did not even know were being planted. And... You know, we have to, it, the problem is it didn't come in, you know, in a parade. Yeah, here, here's where I grew up. I grew up in a world, you know, all of, yeah, we're, we're all at least Gen Xers in here. You know, yeah, we all grew up thinking that the way you get sucked into the devil's ways is by playing Black Sabbath al albums backwards and, uh, and, and, you know, going to the wrong movies. So, so we were all told, you know, like, you know, don't hang around with people who, you know, want to be witches. And, you know, if you see pentagrams anywhere, you stay away from it. It's like, that's overt. We were, we were, we were warned against overt witchcraft. But, you know, C.S. Lewis in the, in, the, um, uh, in the screw tape letter says that, you know, Satan is just as pleased with a materialist as he is with a magician. And for so long, we allowed ourselves to think that because we were good boys and girls, that meant that we were being attentive to God. That we were attentive to His ways. If we were successful, then it must be because we were moral. And the way that Satan gets to us 
The way culture gets to us is through social pressure, through temptation, through money, through, you know, through body image, through social media, all those sorts of things. I was, telling, I was talking with, the, uh, with my Thursday morning Bible study this morning. It's like, you know, part of the problem, part of the challenge of parenthood nowadays is that, you know, think about the influences in your kids' lives as a pie, like a pie graph. And, pro, you know, when, when I think about it, probably when I was, when I was a kid, probably my parents' influence occupied probably, I would say, 50 to 60, maybe even 75% of that pie graph. Now, within that was, 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 was you know, church and stuff like that. that but the family was the biggest influence on my, on, on my growth. I would, say, I would say that nowadays, that pie graph, parents get maybe 10%. So, well, social media and everything else that comes in with that. I mean, social media, school, which is very often now, you know, it's sort of disconnected from religious or family values. Um, you know, all of these things, you know, what are the influences? You know, and, and I will say that as a parent, as a dad, when I talk about these things, I'm not doing it to pat myself on the back. You know, when, he, when you hear me talk as a parent, it's not to pat myself on, on the back. It's to say, wow, if I could do it all again, here's what I would do. Because it, you know, one of the things that just, just floored me, almost brought me to tears a couple years ago, was when I read that in a, sur- a recent survey by the Barna Group, that when, when kids have a big question in their lives, nine out of 10 kids check Google before they ever have a, a conversation with an adult in their lives. And actually the hierarchy goes, first I ask Google, because it's anonymous. Then I ask my friends, I check it out with my friends. Then maybe I'll ask a parent or, or an adult. So we have to watch, so, so Joshua is, or excuse me, God is telling Joshua, we have to be morally courageous we have to be we have to be in a position where we where we say i know it's going to be hard and i know it's unpleasant but we have to take a stand here this morning in in the thursday morning bible study we were reading this in ecclesiastes though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life yet i know that it will be well with those who fear god because they fear him because because they fear before him but it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. In other words, you know, that fear, fearing God, uh, one, of the, one of the things that, that really has affected my theology is, is an understanding, a keen understanding, that the term, expression, the fear of the Lord, or fearing God, means to take God seriously. And that, that came in a Holy Spirit moment, in a conversation 25 years ago. But, when we hear that we are called to fear the Lord, that does not mean that we live in abject fear of an abusive, uh, an abusive deity. It means that we take God seriously. Like, you would, like if you loved your coach, like you would take your coach seriously. If you loved your father, you take your father seriously. If you love your mother, you take your mother seriously. You know, and, and the truth is, if we do not take God seriously, well, who did that get in trouble? One casual slip cost Moses his entry into the promised land. And think about all the good stuff Moses did. You think you're better than Moses? You think we, we, do we think we're better than Moses? No, we better take the salvation offered in Jesus Christ seriously. 
Because if anybody earned his salvation, if anybody earned in, uh, entrance into the promised land and the promised rest of God, it was Moses. But one rock tap kept him out. Until Jesus Christ came along, which we talked about last week. But Moses is telling the people, if we are going to fulfill the destiny that God has for us, we're going to have to be morally courageous as well as physically courageous. We can't just be the toughest, baddest tribe on the block going in there, kicking butt, taking names, burning cities, and that sort of thing. We have to also be a nation of priests. We have to be God's holy people, His representatives on earth. That's what we are called to be. And so Joshua stood in front of the people and said, this is what God wants from you. This is what God wants from us. Now it's interesting, the rest of this chapter kind of follows as, as, as almost a, a sort of a, a, not a parable, but an, an example, a, a test case of personal integrity and why this is going to matter. So let's look real quickly at, at the next little bit of this, of this chapter. Uh, beginning in verse 12, And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest, and I will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all of the men of valor among you, that's all the warriors, all the men of fighting age, shall pass over armed before your brothers. In other words, they're going to become the vanguard of the people. And they shall help them until the Lord gives you, that's, until the Lord gives your brothers, that's, you know, the you there, that's plural. How do we say that in the South? Y'all. Till the Lord gives y'all, uh, gives them rest, and you shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as He has given to you. And they shall also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then, and only then, you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan, beyond, before the sunrise. Remember, uh, toward the sunrise, remember that when they came into this area, when they're still on the east side of the Jordan, the people of Reuben, the, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Manasseh, started looking around and said, Hey, you know what? We're cattle people. We're sheep people. We're herd people, and this is good land. And this is like this is this is good sort of prairie land, grazing land, cattle land. Um, hey, uh, Moses, want to run something by you? We really like this. We know that the other side, you know, grass is always greener on the other side of the Jordan. Sure, but this is not bad, and. It's still well within the territory that God has given us. See, people always tend to think, oh, well, they, they want to land outside of the promised land. Nah, not really. When you look at those boundaries, they, there are hundreds of miles of buffer between here and the Euphrates. But, so, okay, all right. How about it? You know, we'll make a deal with you. We will go, if you give us this land, we'll go in, we'll help the others fight, and then we'll come back at the end. Moses took it to God. God came back and said, okay, deal. We can do that. Works out fine. But you have to fulfill your promise. You have to fulfill your promise. 
You see, here's the thing. You see, do you see the moral and physical courage parallels here? The Gadites, the Reubenites, and the Manassites said, we've got the guts to go in and fight. But do they have the moral integrity to finish the job? They have the moral courage to obey God and keep their promise. It's one thing to say, yeah, we're big and bad and tough. But do you actually have the moral grit to actually do what the, what the Lord has promised, or what you promised to the Lord? So, so again, we have an interesting little par, uh, uh, parable almost with these three tribes. God's sort of putting them to the test. Well, what's the people's response? The people's response is this, And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. And I love this line, Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with us as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. And again, and so we add to what God has already said, only be strong and courageous. So I want to go back to this line. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so will be we obey you. Do you think that was discouraging or encouraging to Joshua? Yeah, that's like, yeah, look at our track record. Like, it's like, I think Moses, if I was Joshua, I'd be like, I'm going to need this in writing. <laughs> I'm going to, I'd like a little bit of paperwork on this. Y'all, y'all remember the old, like, uh, sign? I, I, it seems like I used to always see it in, like, mechanic shops. It used to say, it's like, uh, you know, um, uh, well, well, what did it say? Uh, in God we trust, all others pay cash. <laughs> you know, it's, um, I think that's, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of the situation here. Because have the people proven to be faithful to God? Did they prove to be faithful to Moses? What, what did they excel in with Moses? Grumbling, complaining, rebellion, compromise. You know, that little, I mean, we all know, that, you all know the, the feeling of that little tug on, on, your, on your sleeve. Mama, daddy, daddy, mama, 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 mama. It's like, I told you no. Mama, daddy, 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 mama, mama. It's like, it never ends. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sure... I'm sure when Moses was sitting on top of Mount Nebo, there was a part of him that was like, I'm, I can't believe I can't go into the promised land. But on the upside, I don't have to hang around with these people anymore. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, leave me somewhere in central Florida. I don't want to go to Disney World anymore. I, I can't make it past Jacksonville. Because it was hard. And so... So, Moses, so, so Joshua says, okay. And it's interesting, again, we look at the parallels. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so will we obey you. Compare that to the promise that God makes. Just as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I mean, there's a parallel there. And so, you know, we, uh, you know I think that lined up with all the apostles will be all of the people of Israel who said, oh, you think we were faithful? You know, you're standing up at the pearly gates waiting for me. You said some mean things about us. Well, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe they meant it. And just like me, they fail on their promises sometimes. Their courage fails. I understand that. But it is interesting, the parallels here. Just as we obey Moses in all things, so will we obey you. Only be strong and courageous. Again, that emphasis. Joshua has now heard it three times. Not just from God, but also from his own people. And that is encouraging. That's not just encouraging, that's incarnational think about it. You've heard me tell the story about the, the kid in the thunderstorm who wakes up, jumps in bed with his parents and says, 
you know, it says, you know, Dad, I'm scared. And his dad says, well, don't worry, God's with you. He says, yeah, but I need somebody with some skin on. <laughs> Purpose of the incarnation. We needed a God with some skin on. It's, you know, uh, R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite Reformed theologians, talks about, you know, one of the unfortunate things that we did in the Reformation is when we were dealing with confession, we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, we, we needed to redefine confession as, you know, you don't, you, it's not the priest who forgives you. It's not, you know, it's not a requirement. I mean, it's, it's like it doesn't have to go through a priest for you to get forgiveness, but there is something powerful in another human being pronouncing over you the word of God when the priest hears your confession and says, not by his own power, but in the name of God, te absolvo. Your sins are forgiven. It helps when somebody with some skin on speaks the word of God's truth. That's why at the, end of, you know, at the end of our confession cycle, when we say the prayer of confession on Sunday morning, we always finish with that affirmation to each other, friends, believe the good news in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. So again, here, it's good for them to hear this. It's good for Joshua to hear this. It's one thing for God to say it. It's like we're, we heard it and we're saying it too. Now we just got to live up to it. And so at that point then, um, at that point, we just see that, that God is positioning them. God said, Joshua says to the people, all right, leaders of the tribes, get ready. It's time to go. It's time to move forward. It's time for, it's time for us to get ready. And so they are now positioned. They've been re-instructed and re-educated by Moses. They've been commissioned. Joshua's been commissioned. The people have been commissioned. They've been reminded of their promises, and they have been assured that God is with them. So what's it going to take now to, for the mission of God to be fulfilled? The physical and moral courage of the people. Not so different from what's happening right now. What's it going to take for our, for our country to see any kind of transformation, for our city to see any kind of revival, for our homes to finally be healthy? It's going to take physical and moral courage. Courage, and not just moral courage into, well, here's what I think is right. You know, people always say, well, you know, always let your conscience be your guide. You know, like Jiminy Cricket. You know, always let your conscience be your guide. Well, unless, unless your spirit, unless your conscience is the Holy Spirit of God, explicitly directed by His Word, your conscience is wrong. Your conscience is fallen. Don't trust the cricket in your ear. Trust the Word of God. And so when we do that, when we, you know, when we remain, to be morally courageous means to even, to obey the Word of God, even when it doesn't always make sense, when it doesn't always sync up with our experience, when we can't see the outcome. Remember, God has already promised them victory, and they haven't even set foot across the Jordan River yet. But what is interesting, if you look all the way back at these boundaries, they've got... I mean, they've already had victories in the promised land, haven't they? Because if, oops, excuse me, if this is the promised land, have they not already had victories here? They've had victories at least, uh, at least here, here, and here. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, all the other ites. <laughs> they've, had, they've had lots of victories in, in the promised land already. God is true to His Word. He is faithful. They've got to remember those victories and they've got to trust in the victories that He's going to give them. And that's the basis for moral courage. That's the basis for physical courage.
courage. So be strong and courageous. Remember that God has a plan and a purpose for your life. Remember that He has a plan and purpose for this church. And remember that He has already promised victory. You know, one of the things we have to remember as Christians is that when we think of the cross, we are not walking toward victory. We're walking from victory. We are walking from the empty tomb. And what God says in, in this time is, I have already won the victory. You just have to have the courage to trust me and go in and occupy it. So next week, we're going to talk about the first moves into the land and meet somebody who will become an important figure throughout the rest of biblical history. All right, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this great example of moral and physical courage, not just in the person of, of Joshua, but in all those men and women who also trusted God, trusted God enough to follow His mission and His purpose. And that doesn't just end with the people of Israel, Lord. We thank you for people like John McCullough. We thank you for people like Martin Luther King, who's whose birthday we celebrated this week. We thank you for, for people in our own personal lives who have demonstrated courage, both moral and physical courage. And we thank you, Lord, for those times when you have bolstered us when we were weak. Lord, help us to find courage in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much, and we'll see you all later. And I will say, as much as I mocked the, the whole uh, snow forecast earlier, there is a little bit of precipitation in the forecast for around noon or so, so don't tarry. Uh, thank you for being here, but uh, it's, as, long as, as long as it stays above 35, we just call freezing rain rain. So, uh, <laughs> uh,